This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome to Changing the Podcast. Come for the vibes, stay for the glamour. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is also your host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Greetings. And also, we have a special guest here, Changeling author, developer, and of my, among Changeling and other things, Charlie Cantrell. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, Charlie, um, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? How, how did you get into Changeling or gaming in general? Well, gaming in general uh, started out back in middle school. A friend of mine got a board game called HeroQuest, and uh, we played that, and I loved it. Later on, I was looking for kind of the same sort of thing, but couldn't really find a board game like that. I tried several things, but nothing really scratched the itch. Until another friend of mine suggested we try this strange thing called role-playing. And this was shortly after the Men in Black movies came out, and he had he picked up a copy of the Men in Black role playing game, and so that was my first exposure to role playing properly. And then another friend suggested we do Star Wars, and we did Star Wars for several years until I was introduced to the world of darkness. And Vampire was like nothing I had experienced up until that point, and so I just sort of fell in love with it. And tried to, and I wanted to experience the rest of the World of Darkness, so I got all the other core books and decided I would run a game that was going to be a, a multi-splat kind of game, although I didn't have the terminology for it at the time. But uh, I was going to, everyone, all the players started their characters as humans and then had a, uh, how, what, how was it we did? We did uh, their top three supernatural creatures that they wanted their character to turn into. And depending on how the game went is what kind of creature their character would turn into. And I would try and guide it towards one of those. And one of the players really wanted to be a changeling. And me at the time was like, what's that? (laughs) (laughs) And and so I uh, going out and getting a copy of the core book. And I, it was like when I first experienced vampire, like it was, it was something so new and so neat, unlike any of the other World of Darkness games besides Vampire that I had tried out when I opened up the core book. I just could not put it down. I was turning page after turning page, and uh, or page after page, and, and uh, just absolutely fell in love with it on my first read-through. And so I made absolutely sure that her character <laughs> turned into a changeling. <laughs> And uh, and I've been playing and running Changeling ever since, uh, and it's been one of my all-time favorite role-playing games. Wow, that, that sounds kind of like jumping in the deep end to get started. <laughs> A little bit, yes. There are worse deep ends to jump into. But that's what you oh. do, though. Yes. Um, yeah. But yeah, if there's no one else to run it, then you kind of got to do it yourself, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> And how did you end up getting onto sort of the writing and developing end? C20, actually. Um, I 
it was about the time that uh, Wraith 20th Anniversary Edition got announced. And I kind of had it in my head that, or, or, you know, I figured that if they were going to do Wraith, which was the first of the World of Darkness games to get canceled due to lack of sales, I thought for sure that there'd be a Changeling, the 20th Anniversary Edition. So I got on Onyx Path's website and looked up their writing guideline submissions, and I followed them. Uh, <laughs> I, I wrote this, uh, uh, what was it? I can't remember if it was 1,000 words or 1,500. But anyway, I, whatever it was, I wrote it, and it was supposed to be half sort of setting and half mechanics. And I did a reworking of banality as my submission for Changeling. And I submitted it, and I didn't hear anything for, uh, gosh, about a year or so. And so I was like, I probably, well, it probably wasn't quite a year, but it had been long enough that I thought they weren't going to contact me or anything. And, you know, after I was at peace with, the, with, with you know, they, that I wouldn't be contacted, uh, I got an email from the C20 developer saying that he liked my submission and wanted me on the book. So that's how I got started. Was that the actual system of banality with triggers and such that ended up being in C20? Or... Oh no, this this was a this was ah. actually completely different. <laughs> it was uh, I did a a sort of a reimagine. My submission was a was a reimagining of banality. It was um, gosh, I'm trying to remember exactly how I did it. This was this was several years ago now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It did banality more like a more like a hierarchy of sins uh, in Vampire mm-hmm. the Masquerade, so that you uh, there are certain things that you could do that you know if you had a very low banality it would uh, it would increase your banality pretty easily, but kind of like the the hierarchy of mm-hmm. sins in Vampire, as you do worse things, you get inured to them, and so those sorts of things don't really affect your humanity score anymore. And that was the, sort of the same way with this take on banality. As you experience and gather banality, the the uh, the lesser sins of banality, so to speak, don't affect you as much anymore. As um, you study additional tax law, you find... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but that means that you're more weighed down with banality. Right, also, yeah. so, um, so was that the genesis of the Radio Free Arcadia sort of projects that you've put forward. And I wondered if you could sort of explain what that is, since my understanding is that that's the group behind the Harpagers of Winter book that we'll be talking about. It is. Um, so after after the C20 Player's Guide came out, it was uh, looking unlikely that uh, that any more C20 books would get approved by, by Paradox. So we still had quite a few things that we wanted to do with the game line. So a few of us uh, got together and decided that we would, uh, that, that Storyteller's Vault might be a good avenue to kind of ex- still explore what we wanted to, what the sort of things that we wanted to explore with C20. The only downside is that we didn't really have much data on it. And ev- everyone there being professional writers, uh, they'd have to, be able to be compensated for their writing time because if they write on one thing that means that they don't have the time to to write on another and these are people's paychecks that they rely on so uh writing is is not my primary source of income so i kind of uh, decided i would test the waters with a small book 
And uh, that was Kits of Arcadia. And just to see kind of how that would do and if it would be possible to, to use that as an avenue to, to kind of unofficially continue the line. And it did, it did okay in hindsight. At the time, I, I wasn't so sure if it was doing okay because it did not match the sales rate of an official Changeling book mm. by, <laughs> by an order of magnitude, <laughs> mm. at least, and still really hasn't. But it did kind of, I, I was able to use the, the data on it that it gave me to kind of create a path where uh, a, a production via Storyteller's Vault might be viable. And I tested that idea with a, another small release called Past is Prologue. And it did not sell as well as, as Kiths of Arcadia. But as far as a return on investment, it did uh, much better than Kiths of Arcadia. So that proved to me that, that it is possible to compensate writers for their time uh, via Storyteller's Vault. And so using that model from past this prologue, I was able to hire several writers who have all worked on C20, and they're all professionals who write for a living. And uh, we put together Harbingers of Winter, which was one of the books that uh, a lot of us had wanted to do for the C20 game line. We wanted to do a really deep dive into the antagonists, especially with how um, a few of them got reimagined a bit with c20 that was that was my follow-up question was with this book in particular what was the sort of background for that so yeah (laughs) yeah that was it things like uh the dantane they got uh completely reimagined in c20 and the thelane got reimagined and cast into a, a a new light with c20 compared to what they were in second edition Autumn people weren't changed too much in C20, but they, I think they got a bit more of a bite to them, so to speak. They're a bit more dangerous and not just dangerous to changelings, but dangerous to mortals as well. And I wanted to explore that a bit because the way changelings and humans are are so linked and that uh, that symbiosis and uh, and a little bit of friction between the two are that duality, I guess, between changelings and humanity, I guess that's the best way to put it, is such so much at the core of what changeling dreaming is. And then also we wanted to kind of reintroduce the Fomorians into C20 since they weren't really much in the, the C20 core book. And also there was a uh, the tithe from the Time of Judgment book. Uh, I always thought that they were such a cool concept and I really wanted to um, introduce them as as a viable antagonist for uh, Changeling the Dreaming, not just kind of a uh, end-of-the-world deus ex machina yeah, yeah. sort of thing. <laughs> Something that, uh, that troops could really use in their chronicles. Yeah. Well, since we've kind of given an overview of some of the different sorts of antagonists that are in the book, perhaps we should do our chapter-by-chapter chapter summary and questions thing. Sure. Josh, did you have any other general questions? Some, maybe some general questions more to the end, but uh, we can go through the book now. So chapter one, because this is, I mean, this is how we've been doing our book dives, just, you know, chapter by chapter for the sake of mm-hmm. thematic unity. I suppose. <laughs> so we start with this. Sounds good. <laughs> we start with this little prelude of some changelings escaping from Knoxville and 
setting the scene for the spreading mm -hmm. darkness over Concordia, I guess you could say. One of the things I really appreciated as someone who, yes. you know, similarly with every Changeling book that I got in my youth, you know, I couldn't stop turning pages every time I picked up a new one and seeing some of those old faces kind of pop up like, oh, it's King Melia again, you know, that, that jerk. Mm -hmm. Or like the Aslanthi <laughs> popping up. You know? <laughs> that jerk. So, so I like the sort of hat tips to canon that, mm -hmm. that appear in this book. And it's it's clear, I think, that this was written by people who have a deep appreciation for the history of the game and all of the little elements and found ways to reintroduce them. So I think that was cool. Yeah. The other the other little fun thing about that opening story, Julia, one of the characters in there, was actually my first ever changeling the dreaming npc from uh -huh. uh, from that first game that was <laughs> way back when when i first discovered nice. changeling, so. <laughs> so all right so we start off with chapter one being sort of a series of prophecies and an overview of the state of things in this i don't know i don't know if to whether to call it like in the evanescence yeah the status yeah. quo of the yeah. evanescence <laughs> so can you if you had to give like the elevator pitch of where things stand in your estimation how would you describe changeling life at the moment i would describe it as actually one of the section headings of that chapter standing on the precipice they are things are bad for changelings right now uh, in the evanescence dark glamour is on the rise dark glamour is really the embodiment of the pomorian dream the Tuathan dream traditional glamour that the that the changelings are used to is waning waning significantly to the point where it is difficult for most changelings to come by it there are some that have an abundance of it, and so changeling society is split into the haves and have-nots. The haves sit on their hoard and live incredibly comfortable lives of luxury as far as their access to glamour goes, whereas the vast majority of changelings can just barely get by. They, they have a hard time getting enough glamour to survive because uh, they need that glamour to stand as a bulwark against banality and they just don't have enough and so that obviously creates a lot of tension in changeling society and so it's looking a lot like another war might be brewing this one probably messier than the original accordance war that also ties into what i think of it kind of hit me as the one of the most biggest horror elements i've ever found in a changeling of any kind oh yeah was the new background grammar gig, gig worker <laughs> which just when i contemplated that i was just the, it's extra horror because you know it's real it too real, but it's an obvious real world point. analog <laughs> which is uh the real life is is so much of the uh yeah. the inspiration for the status quo of the evanescence one of the things that we really wanted to do with c20 uh one of the mission statements for it was to how how did the developer put it he wanted the game to say something uh, like the world of darkness games used to do uh, back in the 90s they all had something to say about current events mm -hmm. and that's what c20 does the, the whole setup of c20 is to is to be a reflection of reality and kind of what so many people are going through in real life yeah and it's it's definitely it's the kind yeah. of thing that sort of I know one of the topics that comes up again and again in discussions among Changeling fans is the nature of glamour and banality. And when I was reading that section in particular, the notion mm -hmm. of 
oh, you know, this is this is something that a group of knockers put together in order to facilitate everyone getting enough glamour. But the whole structure of trying to sort of capture glamour and and parcel it out in that way seems kind of banal. So <laughs> it's like it's that difficulty of balancing it and what might seem glamorous on the surface, there's a lot of banality underneath and just it's always more complicated the further you dig down, just like life in a sense. So yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I was glad to see Morwen pop up though. I feel like Morwen is one of my favorite characters who we don't get enough of. I really wanted to revisit the royal family a little bit. And uh, the original outline for this chapter didn't have them in there, but then I just, I was writing in that and the core book specifically avoided getting too much into what was going on with the movers and shakers of Concordia. And, uh, but I personally just always sort of really loved that little story of those characters. And so I wanted to, to see what they were up to during the Evanescence. And so I, I carved out a little bit of space to, uh, uh, to include them. Morwen, Lenore, Fairleth, and everyone's favorite Niall Peacemaker. Well, in the last episode we just recorded was our dive into Nobles, the Shining Host. So seeing these characters, or some of them at least, kind of at the two end points mm-hmm. is interesting. <laughs> and I do like how you make the point in here, um, 50 years have passed, or more than 50 years since the resurgence, and mm-hmm. no she is going to retain their grip on sanity like for that long. So <laughs> not not if they're yeah. high, staying in their freeholds and, uh, and right. just being inundated with so much well, well, but if they're not, then they're if they're, they're not, then they'd be, they'd be well, 50, 50 years, years old and that's and, going to uh, not work too and, well either. Uh, dealing yeah. with the, all the banality that would accumulate from all that and uh probably a lot of them would be undone. So it's, uh, <laughs> you've got two, two terrible choices to make. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, or at least from their perspective, two terrible choices to make. Yeah. So finishing up sort of there a bit more on uh, things that get followed up in later chapters, but just sort of overviewing changes mm-hmm. to the world to Evanescence, making things a little bit darker, maybe, maybe a bit more than a little bit. <laughs> a bit. Yes. <laughs> The thought that I'm left with, with those, those elements about like, here's, here's all the ways in which the dreaming is kind of falling apart and, you know, things are kind of fraying is maybe this all happened before with the shattering too. And in the same way that the Tuatha dream is falling apart, when I look at something like Dark Ages Fae and all of the differences in that piece of the history, mm-hmm. maybe that was another case where the dream transitioned and all of these things the Fae thought they could rely on fell away and were replaced with what's happened for the last 600 years. And now it's another moment of Mm -hmm. upheaval. Yes. Yeah. I I kept on going, this is like the uh, time of judgment chapter Mm -hmm. for changeling. Like this is that time of judgment was like a very short, Mm -hmm. everything falls apart. This is like, okay, this is if you want to do a really long chronicle. Or <laughs> the end just sort of drags out and it just keeps going and going yeah. and going. Yeah. You, you, right. Well, it's almost like a pre. You can make it as a prequel to Time of Judgment or something. Like the. Between, well, I, yeah. I was going to say, like, it, ma- it makes the apocalypse super banal because <laughs> it yeah. just it sets in and, and it just doesn't. Uh, doesn't go anywhere. It's just yeah. there. Yeah, you could you could take this trajectory with your group of PCs and twenty years in game could still pass and they could still be playable mm-hmm. characters, but the world would <laughs> yeah, not be no. good for them. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that takes us into chapter two, Frozen Hearts, which is about autumn people. 
yeah, this this really expands out the autumn people, I think, in a way that makes them a lot more useful mm-hmm. in your game, I guess. But also useful in other games, like World of Darkness games. Like this chapter specifically, I could pull out in like a mage game, technocracy or traditions, or you could throw it in a bunch of other... Like, because the autumn people are... It's, it, it's all these subtle things they can do that make sense. They're not powerful. They don't realize they're doing anything yeah. that's... They don't think of yeah. themselves as magic. It doesn't, but it's still. If somebody is is thinking of the world through the magic of any kind, mm-hmm. this really looks like a threat. So. <laughs> Absolutely. And, yeah, um, yeah. That's the that's the thing about the autumn people. They don't they don't even know that they are damaging the world with their presence. They just are as they move through their life, mm-hmm. and that's uh, <laughs> kind of horrific. <laughs> But they are literally damaging the fabric of of reality just by existing, at least from a changeling or mage perspective, they are. (laughs) I don't know if vampires would care that much, but... uh... Uh, Even even vampires, I think, would find some of this frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sure, yeah. I could see that, like a... uh a prince of the city trying to do, trying to influence things. And then somebody, some autumn person is like, no, that goes against the rules. (laughs) We must follow these rules. Well, you have things like a stigmata, which Mm -hmm. is like the powers. There's new stigmata here, like frenzied mob. Like what's the classic thing in a vampire game of like (laughs) (laughs) mortals up against them. Torches and torchworks at the castle gates. Yes. (laughs) Yep. There is something about the Autumn People, too. So, again, you know, we've recently looked at the original Autumn People book and some of the muddled presentation of them in there. But I'm curious what your read is on the idea of Autumn People who are dangerous without being intentionally hostile in terms of another discussion that I know we've had in the community for a while. So, like, if the Autumn person doesn't know that they're a threat and obviously there's many directions you can go with someone doing doing awful things quote for someone else's own good that are absolutely terrible Mm -hmm. but does that add nuance to them in in a way that is that part of your conception of them absolutely i uh live in a rural southern town where the um that sort of rural conservative Christianity permeates everything around here. It's it is hard to really explain it to folks who who don't exist in the situation just how much that is everywhere and what a toxic environment it is honestly. But from the people's perspective who are perpetuating that, they think that they are saving people's souls, that they are doing a good thing even though it's incredibly oppressive, it's incredibly harmful what they're doing, but they truly believe that they are doing good in the world, which is mind-boggling from my perspective. <laughs> but, uh, but from their point yeah. of view, they truly believe that they are uh, a force of good. Yeah. But it is one thing I've noticed, one, thing, one difference I'd say contrasting this with uh, the Autumn People book is the Autumn People in here are definitely much more active forces like the the original autumn people some of them were but it was also a lot of some of them were basically victims it almost seemed like or but that makes it hard to use in a game like what okay there's this person off there if you have to deal with them it's a problem but here they're all very going out and getting in your face yeah that was that was always my problem with trying to use them um in first and second edition is that an autumn person was just you know a school librarian or 
uh, a used car salesman or something. It's it's not something that you could really engage with in the game unless you ended up having your chronicle go in a, a very certain direction. And then, you know, you've got this autumn person who essentially becomes a speed bump. They're, they're never going to be the big bad. Mm-hmm. I, I did have one character once with a, was playing a childling back when childling was age-based and with uh-huh. Uh, ended up having an autumn person mother, so that oh, one did create that would that would certainly be <laughs> more than a speed bump. <laughs> <The exotic. laughs> uh, I, I hope your character wasn't a nun <laughs> prematurely. <laughs> no, it, it got. Uh, yeah, you <laughs> were just talking about my character. He went on the uh, hardcore unseely childling approach to that. So yeah. <laughs> took things in a different direction there but yeah she almost destroyed a freehold and was in a larp and it's actually somebody it was i was surprised i didn't know somebody came in dressed as her like in her full like business attire like into the freehold at oh the LARP. wow that that's was, cool <laughs> and like the entire because i'd like run away from home and like all the player characters were like uh <laughs> we gotta stop this <laughs> yeah that's great that's that's a great use of the of the old school uh autumn people that's awesome <laughs> i love that <laughs> yeah but she definitely would have some of these things in the <laughs> still she could have had some like gaslight would have fit very well. <laughs> awesome yeah the uh these powers and all they are 100 percent Catherine schutler schutler i'm actually not sure how to pronounce the last name but yeah she uh she wrote this chapter and i think she she absolutely knocked it out of the park I honestly, I think all of everyone <laughs> did, but uh, yeah, like I, I had to go back over for this, uh, preparing for this, checking who wrote one, because like, if, if I had just been told that there was one author for this book, I'd be like, okay. <laughs> like it, it, nice. <laughs> is that, yeah. is that maybe a point to segue into asking generally just what was the process like of editing all of this together if you were to advise someone who wanted to edit a book for storytellers vault rather than write it solo what would you say was your experience um well this one it wasn't too bad really i did have one author i i will not mention the name because i don't want to embarrass that person but I did have one author originally who did not work out. That person gave me their first draft, and I uh, marked it up with red lines, asked them to to change certain things to kind of fit with what the book needed to be. And then they gave me their second draft, and almost nothing was changed. And so I ended up having mm-hmm. to replace that author with another one, which I hated to do. I really did because I liked the person quite a bit, but what they yeah. what they gave me just. Uh, just didn't work at all. So, well, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a different process for everybody working together to make one thing yeah. instead of one person has an idea and they want to make that. Thing. Yeah, which both work definitely for the Stellar Stellar Vault, especially. Mm-hmm. But absolutely, um, but when you've got a collaborative project like this where yeah. everyone is trying to write a cohesive book mm-hmm. together, then um, whoever is the developer, you kind of got to go with what with what they're doing, and that's the same way it is on the official books. There's somebody who is the developer, mm-hmm. and they're kind of like the project lead, project manager, so to speak. And they're the one with the idea of what the book should end up being. And the writers are writing towards the, the developer's direction. Mm-hmm. So That actually reminds me of uh, you know, another question. Was, did you find any big differences in developing and writing this book from what you would have done in a, if it was an official book? 
like <laughs> things you brought in that you wouldn't have normally or things i don't know like, um well i had to wear a lot more hats on this book than i would have if it were a, uh, <laughs> a <laughs> i got to be the uh developer one of the writers i was the art director i was the layout person <laughs> um, mm. so it was uh it was a lot uh, a lot more than than i would have done if it were an official book published by say onyx path or something mm -hmm. but it was it was still a a fun project and a labor of love right on yeah so moving forward mm -hmm. we have chapter three Exiles from Dream, which is about... I'm going to try to do, like, the um, microphone effect thing, okay? The <laughs> I don't know if that worked or not. Oh, that worked. <laughs> um, excellent. This, I have to say, my, my favorite part... I mean, overall, the book is very enjoyable, but my favorite specific thing to use in a game is in this chapter, and it's the notion of the schismatic dreaming. Mm-hmm. And that, again, oh, going yes. back to that notion of banality and glamour being kind of individualized, it's almost like the the manifestation of cognitive dissonance. And I really, really liked that. Mm -hmm. It's something that I like to deal with in Changeling. I like to deal with in Mage. And it's a topic which is just infinitely complex to work into a game. So I was really happy to see that form part of the conception here. Yeah, this is the other thing besides the autumn people stuff where I'm going... This would really be handy in a mage game too. The schismatic, right. like <laughs> schismatic reality. Yeah. So, and and the, the wording I think was felt like that too. <laughs> I was going to say, fun fact. Speaking of these guys and mages, uh, this chapter was written by Luca Carroll, and he was the one who reimagined uh, the Autumn People in the C twenty core book. And uh, this was his him going deeper than he had the word count to do in uh, mm. in the in in C twenty. And he's also a huge Mage fan. It's <laughs> one of his all-time favorite games is Mage. <laughs> so, so there was some definitely some Mage influence there. <laughs> yeah, that tracks. That makes sense, given everything in it. So. I also liked the the worm tongue art. It's like, oh, nice touch. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. Yeah, I loved the uh, the names of those powers that he came up with. <laughs> the, uh... <laughs> yeah, it's a nice counterpoint to Dreamcraft, kind of. Uh huh. <laughs> Or or webcraft if we're gonna go back. To yep. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he he gave me his outline uh, for, for what he wanted to do for this chapter, and and I saw the the shatter. He didn't he didn't have a description for it at the time. Just the the fifth dot of uh, worm tongue being the shattering, and I was like, yes, yes, absolutely. I have no idea what it's gonna do, but I can't wait to see it. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that you say that this is sort of going deeper, you know, having more room to explore the the concept of the Dantean, because even even with the extended word count here, there's a lot where I have more questions. And I do, <laughs> I appreciate how there is the note at the beginning that says, you know, we understand some may wish to use them as player characters, but this embraces them as like solid antagonists. So it does leave a lot of sort of loose threads that players can follow, storytellers can follow. Mm -hmm. But I kept thinking of oh, well, I wonder, you know, in this case, what would happen with this? And it just kind of created lots of ideas surrounding how to use them in a chronicle, but also exploring, for lack of a better term, the daunting condition, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I, like, I, yeah, this definitely filled it out for me too. Like reading it in the C20 core book, I was like, what are they? Like, because I'd kind of gotten them in the original Autumn People book and then I'm reading the C20 mm -hmm. core. Okay, they're different, but what 
it, it didn't quite feel complete, but I think this crafted it out that I'd feel more comfortable having antagonists daunting from reading this. Yeah, that was actually one of my things in the original outline for the book that I wrote as the note for this chapter, that the Dante and the C20 core book are a really cool reimagination of them, and uh, and they make a lot more sense than the <laughs> than the original did. But the way they're presented in the, core, the C20 core book is, it's like they're treading on an unearned reputation, like they're... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're being treated as this big scary thing, but the core book doesn't really doesn't really have the space to go into why they're scary. And yeah, uh, that's what I wanted to really wanted this chapter to do uh, was to show why they're scary. I think Luca did a fantastic job of, of doing that with the mm-hmm. way they they break reality. Yeah, because you need that because like it's like okay, well, how scary are you when you also have like literal incarnations of nightmare? right mm-hmm. but but here it's yeah it's like oh that is scarier than just literal incarnations of you're breaking reality and that's yes yeah. <laughs> so yeah takes us into speaking of i guess literal incarnations of nightmare we have the <laughs> chapter four darkness ascendant good segue <laughs> yes which is way more on the Fomorians than we've ever had before. <laughs> and Well, Darkness Ascendant, the, the lane, we're not quite yes. to the Fomorians. Yeah, that's yet. true. Sorry, yes. <laughs> yeah. yes it is a Thelane, right? But it's also useful <laughs> because Thelane are... Sorry, I got mixed up. But yeah, the, it gives a whole structure to the Black Court mm-hmm. in a way, which is really handy for a game I'm running actually right now for my kids. So... Awesome. I'm quite happy with this, although it's not quite following the recommendations in here since one of the one of my kids is playing a beastie. But anyway, <laughs> there there are no gaming police that are going to come to your door. Yes, it's, stop, it's a, so. it's, one is a beastie and one is a um, autumn uh, Baylor she. So nice. Yes, but anyway, see how I'm looking through. There's a few things I might not bring in, but there's a lot of this I think would. And yeah, it gives the the whole pol- the political structure for the Thalane, mm-hmm. and um, which had strong Sabbat vibes as well. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, it had strong Sabbat vibes, but not like a copy of it either. It, there is no, no, yeah, yeah, and it has a church based structure to it. Mm-hmm. I, I was I was surprised when uh, Steffi gave that to me, and uh, <laughs> but I read it and I was like, that is so cool. I really like that, mm-hmm. and I, I like the way she described it too. I'm trying to skim it real quick and find how she wrote it, but I, I, I I'm not seeing it. But it was something along the lines of they were inspired by how. In, it, I have it here. Yeah. So the Black Court's hierarchy mimics the Catholic Church in a respectful nod to that mortal organization's ability to terrify people into obedience. Yes, that's it. That's well, it. Exactly. Well, it's also th- this whole chapter was. It's about the Fallen, yes, and definitely it's good mm-hmm. for that. But it's also like how to properly bring horror movies into your Changeling game. Mm-hmm. Like so many nods to that, and so much stuff, and the imagery from that that you'd see often show up in horror movies. But with a changeling twist, like and and oh, absolutely the uh, yeah. I mean, there's the clown uh, that's uh, and Bloody Mary, and they make specific yep. references to horror mm-hmm. movies. And then the uh, the house. Oh man, I love the house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to use that in the game sometime. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's just such a perfect. It's a freehold that is a horror movie setting. It's just oh, it's so great. Yeah. 
And then we get the Aslithi, who finally get a write up. Yeah, I see, I see you wrote that mm-hmm. and said that and that. And I can see that you, you may be someone else who, if you've from, say, the werewolf line, kind of like the Ananasi. <laughs> Definitely distinct, but giant spider people. They were. Uh... The Aslanthi first showed up in um, Denizens of the Dreaming. And mm-hmm. in that book, mm-hmm. what they were was kind of left ambiguous. My impression from reading it in that book is that they were something more than Chimera, but not really changelings either. Not like the Thalane or the Adin. But um, with the way that Thalane had been re-envisioned for C20, they seemed like a perfect fit to be a Thalane. Whereas you have the Servitals mm-hmm. as kind of the political leaders of the Thalane, the uh, Aslinthi are kind of the spiritual leaders of the Thalane. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are the ones who really revere the Fomorians in a religious sort of sense and uh, as the fated gods. And I thought that that would really translate well as, uh, as Thalane. Yeah, so like how there's two types of them. That's not something... Mm-hmm. Maybe a few examples of that in Changeling, but it's a... Well, that was that was actually from the original uh, Denizens of the Dreaming. There, oh, okay. there were two casts in uh, case. Oh, okay. I haven't now. read that in a while, so it's going to be a while until we do that in our podcast. So. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll get to it. Yeah. We'll get there. We have to get through the 90s first. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> one book at a time. And, and Denizens was one of the last ones in the line. I think it was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it wasn't the last, but... Uh, but it was almost yeah two or three from the end or something yeah i can't remember if war and concordia came before or after it well it, it, it this is getting into the the thing we've had with just recording the podcast is <laughs> if you if you go by the numbering it makes no sense if you go by because it does definitely doesn't fit the publication order date. yeah you go by publication yeah. date okay but a lot of things are published the same year yep. and then you also get i i swear there's like a cycle of coming soons where mm-hmm. one book will refer to another book. Like there's three books that all refer to each other as coming soon. So yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't realize that. <laughs> it's not just how do I short sort this on my bookshelf. It's how do we do the episodes. But... I, I just try and assemble the pick the spine picture as best I can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is fun since there's several that are duplicated. <laughs> <laughs> and plenty of that are told up the spine snack. picture so it's yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> i want to call out one other thing from this chapter which is we get some more about dark glamour mm-hmm. which again people crave crave knowing more about and there is this note about uh, if kathane use dark glamour and use enough of it and consume it then they might actually become thaline themselves mm-hmm. So I'm curious, now I know there is this notion that there are no ways for Thelene to use normal glamour, but I almost kind of want that to be a chronicle, like a group, a motley of changelings attempting to redeem this, mm-hmm. I don't know, beastie that they found or whatever, and just flooding them with what they consider to be pure glamour. And then what happens? Do they become a puka? I don't know. Um, so, so food for Pete Woodward, uh, he's a longtime Changeling writer and developer. He has a great little saying that in Changeling the Dreaming specifically, the rules are made to be broken. And so if mm-hmm. the players yes. come up with something just amazing that goes against the rules, then that's glamour. <laughs> Let them do it. 
<laughs> so absolutely. So trying to redeem a Thelane by exposing them to to normal glamour, that's awesome. <laughs> that's glamour. Do it. <laughs> it also dovetails nicely. One of the sort of quotations that I like to live by when running any of the World of Darkness games is the line from Hamlet with, there are more things on heaven and earth than are dreamed of in your philosophy. Oh. So if there's something that doesn't exactly fit the presentation of a kith or whatever, mm -hmm. change it. Absolutely. Make it new. Make it unique. Yes. Yeah. So. The dreaming itself is infinite diversity. So infinite mm -hmm. possibility. Yeah. And so the kiths should have infinite possibility within them as well. So. Yeah. Like in my game, I think I have to, because I've been ongoing and then I was reading this book, I'm like, okay, I don't want to just shift things, but that we're in the game, like suddenly applying these rules, but there's a lot that I would want to include. So I'm like, like how do I want to do this? <laughs> yeah. Just do it. <laughs> if yep. the situation warrants it, just do it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So then we get chapter five with the Fomorians. Yes. Now we're in the Fomorians. I have to ask, on the subject of the final books of Changeling, I don't know if even you're at liberty to say how much of the material in this chapter, because I noted it was written by Chris Howard, might have been repurposed from the long foretold but never released Keys to the Kingdom uh, book. Chris Howard didn't tell me, <laughs> but, uh, but I wanted him on this chapter specifically because he did so much with the Fomorians back in the day. Uh, he did, he was, he wrote yeah. Denizens of the Dreaming. He wrote uh, Nobles, the Shining Host, Kithbrook Knocker. He did parts of uh, the second edition core book. And so he just really had a strong sense of what the Fomorians were as the big villains of Changeling the Dreaming, the Changeling the Dreaming equivalent of the Antediluvians, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And just really, uh, when I was reading what he came up with here, it really felt like these were, that had been kicking around in his head for the past 20 years or so. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah, and he yeah. finally got a, an opportunity to, uh, to get them out. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how much of this is repurposed from Keys to the Kingdom. I do know that he was uh, originally slated to be one of the main authors on that book. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So it's very possible. Well, as soon as I saw the Triumph Cask of Sorrows appear, I was like, ah, mm -hmm. there we go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there that's, it is. that's been one of his uh, plot threads that he's used for a long time. <laughs> so. I don't know, Josh, if you have any favorite Fomorians from the... We get an extensive list with each of them having their own individual descriptions. I know I have my favorites, but... I don't... Like, I, there was a plenty that I was happy to see, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure if I have any favorite... Like, oh, more on... Baylor in Changeling. Yeah, I don't have anything in favorite specifically. So, <laughs> I mean, for me, because I've always seen like the Green Court as almost being like Lovecraftian, inscrutable, mm -hmm. you know, squamous things. Having uh, Zalad the Storm of Color, I think, was my favorite. Just this animate construct of dark glamour that just storms through and mm -hmm. warps everything around it. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I was getting serious. Actually, this whole chapter gave me what I've done before in Changeling when I've wanted to depict the Fomorians or the Tuatha mm -hmm. with some mechanical weight is grab a copy of the first edition Exalted um, Exalted the Fair Folk. Mm -hmm. And just reading through this, I'm like, 
okay, that works. That could just totally fit into that framework. <laughs> yeah, that certainly could And it's work. like, Zalad would be an unshaped, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And if you tie in Dark Ages Fey, then, uh, then it works even better. Because uh, in my head, the original split between the, uh, the Fomorians and the Tuatha were basically... Uh, firstborn that wanted to use uh, shaping and others that abhorred it. So, <laughs> or mm. weaving. Weaving is what they called it in the Dark Ages Bay. Mm-hmm. Ones that wanted to use weaving and others that abhorred it. And it is interesting how there is this balance being struck between, you know, because the Fomorians being actual figures from Irish myth, there are specific figures from that body of literature being referenced here and kind of put into the changeling structure mixed with these, I guess, invented out of whole cloth ones that seem much more along Mm. those lines, those sort of, they might as well just be completely outside reality because they don't make any sense and they're terrifying. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but they are kind of outside of reality and terrifying as it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if I had, if I had to give a minor, it'd be maybe shifting around some of the courts mm-hmm. these, but that's fine. Yeah, like like I said, the, the Baylor is a more is the green court, but he seems pretty comprehensible. Mm-hmm. But well, it also seems like court in this write up of them is not because we get references to things like here's the green court whose child was a red court whose child was a white court, mm-hmm. so court seems yeah. less. Oh, it, maybe it is. Actually, it's very much like the courts of Celia and Uncelia. Yes. Yeah. Well, don't tell them that. <laughs> yes, definitely don't tell them well, that. Well, I mean, if, <laughs> yeah, when, you, when you look at the Adheen, that's uh-huh. sort of what they have, right? Uh-huh. The three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Arya. Mm-hmm. And then we get chapter six, the tithe. Before we get to chapter six, I want to, to point out just a little bit of trivia that I thought was cool when I was when I was putting this book together. Please do. So there is one of the uh, Red Court Fomorians is the Broodmother, and it has mm-hmm. this description, uh, like just this absolutely insane description of the mother of monsters, a horrific birthing entity that resides in the depths of Nixus, and then it goes in to describe how it looks. And so I was looking through the the art that's provided for Storytellers Vault works to uh, to find something to illustrate this chapter with, and there isn't a whole lot of Fomorian artwork out there. But then I saw one of the pieces that was originally from Denizens of the Dreaming that is literally an illustration of the Broodmother. <laughs> so, so I really wonder what the first draft of Denizens of the Dreaming was like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah we can get I, I was i was wondering like because did denizens start out because yeah we can get that when we do the eventually do the denizens episode too but like there there seemed to be two different versions of the book uh-huh. <laughs> there where one was these are like the servants of the fomorians kind of they're very tied to the fomorians mm-hmm. but then we get a whole bunch of types of adheen that aren't at all yeah so <laughs> maybe that was from the the denizens like the more from side yeah maybe <laughs> yeah we have like we have the warped beast monster rulers of the dreaming and then muses yeah. so it's like mm. <laughs> yep. Yep, yep, yep but yeah i just thought that that was a, a fun a fun little thing <laughs> 
Now I now I need definitely need to go back over Denizen and see if there's mention of the Broodmother. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I don't remember the Broodmother ever being mentioned in Denizens, but uh, <laughs> but there's an illustration of <laughs> of that entity in there. <laughs> so. I remember this illustration too, and and thinking at the time what I think now because in the foreground there's this sort of stern looking guy just standing. Saying, yep, here she is. Mm-hmm. He's got his arm <laughs> pointed to her. <laughs> You may now see the broodmother. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Good for chapter six. <laughs> yeah, we're good. Sorry. Let's continue on. <laughs> for that little uh, tangent. <laughs> Following the broodmother, we get chapter six, the tithed. So what can you tell us about the tithed? Because this is, I think, I mean, time of judgment, there is like a very brief, like you said, snippet about them, but this is a much more extensive write-up. So mm-hmm. how would you describe them? Because they're totally new for C20. Um, in C20, they are totally new. Um, so the tithes are the, I would call them the price changelings paid to survive the shattering. They are the, the mortal souls that were kicked out of a body so that a fairy soul could inhabit it. Before changelings came up with the modern changeling way of basically coexisting with a mortal soul, minding their their own soul to that of immortals, the only way they had to to don mortal flesh would be to kick out the original inhabitant and take over the body, so to speak, uh, which is still practiced by the Arcadian Chi. The Arcadian Chi are those that have not adopted the, the changeling way. But all changelings have at least one mortal soul that they banished to Arcadia so that they could survive themselves. And they basically stole a life from a mortal and used it as themselves. And the tithe are those mortal souls who have returned and were very unhappy with the deal, (laughs) to put it mildly. (laughs) They want their life back, and they want the changeling to pay for stealing their life. For lack of a better... Well, not for lack of a better... This was definitely the chapter I felt had the strongest changeling, the lost vibes. Exactly. I was like, this is this is changeling the lost with the protagonist and antagonist. Uh huh. Yeah. It it is. uh, It it is like that turned on its head, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Fetches from the other side. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it also has that nice folkloric connection of the the fairy tithe to hell. So Mm -hmm. there is that connection. Yeah, I felt a little bit, I've been trying to slowly work on a Storyteller's Vault supplement, and I'm like, I was doing something about them too. And that's, this is good, right? And I'm just like, is it still going to be okay if I do a totally different take? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. That's what it's for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the dreaming. That's the beauty of the vault. Uh-huh. Yes. It is. They don't have to be a consistent canon across all the vault things. So nope. hopefully Not at some all. point I'll get that. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, Jason wrote that chapter, and I will not attempt to pronounce his last name because I will absolutely butcher it, and I <laughs> I like Jason a whole lot. <laughs> but uh, Pete Woodward was originally going to uh, to write this chapter, um, and he's the one who wrote the uh, Changeling chapter in Time of Judgment. He's the one who originally created the tithe. But then uh, due to circumstances he could not foresee happening at the time, he had to bow out. And so Jason stepped in and took over. Jason has written quite a bit for Onyx Path at this point. Uh, until this, I 
think the only thing he wrote for C20, though, was um, he had a short story in the uh, C20 anthology. It was the one with the the Drakes and the Puka, and I am blanking on the title ah. of it. Uh, uh, but he stepped in and took this over. And since I was originally had Pete Woodworth in mind for this chapter, uh, my outline for this was to basically, uh, these things were plot devices in Time of Judgment. Let's make them suitable for an ongoing antagonist in a chronicle. Go! <laughs> and that was pretty much all the direction he had. <laughs> yeah. and, and mechanically, like this is, it's effective for that and also very different from... I can't think of anything similar to it very much. Yeah, no, I really like the way he, the way he did the uh, flower metaphor for everything, the plant metaphor. Yeah. Uh, so he has the yeah. the roots being kind of the the tithe splats, and he had the uh, the thorns being you know that which they can use to hurt changelings, and then the uh, the blossoms, yes, the blossoms that are kind of their weakness that changelings can exploit. Mm-hmm. One of the neat things about that is how it's rare to see a splat with powers that are predicated on some other being mm-hmm. being in the world. Mm-hmm. And that inherent twinned aspect is, is a really interesting thing to think about how to role play. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, and mechanically it fits it just as well as the... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I loved the thorns and blossoms. I think they work really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Out of the roots, too, I mean, just kind of thinking about the story hooks. The only one that I was, I guess, indifferent to was sort of the ancients, because mm. they didn't have that immediate human connection. But looking at things like the indentured or the relinquished, mm-hmm. you know, these sort of very specific ways that the tithes can be brought into existence, there's a lot of potential in them. Well, the ancients to me seemed like a, I have an idea, oh, I can fit, slot it into here. And then the other two are more, I read this, mm. and then that gives me ideas. But... Mm-hmm. One question I do have, though, just about the way that they're presented here is because I feel like the Changeling Way ritual itself is something that we've seen described in a couple of different ways. Mm-hmm. And the version here, I like it. It's just at odds with what I had had in my head. And so mm-hmm. I'm curious whether that was part of the discussion. Uh, it was not. And I'm. I'm actually curious. Uh, what? Uh, <laughs> well, what? What do you well, think is odds? Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 I, I, well, I guess because like, I, I put it as like ev- sorry, you can. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, go on, go on. Well, I, I'd, I'd put it as every autumn started as an Arcadian. Mm-hmm. If you mean sort of, and that, that's yeah. The... It seemed it seemed very much like the Arcadian she, but then when I was thinking about you know, shattering era, changeling way. I feel like there were references elsewhere in the books, not all of them necessarily, but things like when the changeling died, they would then be reborn into a mortal infant. Mm -hmm. So the notion of that creating a tithe left me with questions like, well, okay, so was it an infant soul that was displaced and grew up in Arcadia and now they've come back because, so it was, you know, I, I roll with it. It was just, it's different from what I had kind of conceived of before. And I feel like the earlier books almost went out of their way not to spell it out. Yeah, they did go out of their way not to spell out things. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but my interpretation of it is that that here comes the shattering and all the, all the gateways to Arcadia are closed. We are stuck. 
we have to survive this uh, this oncoming venality. Quick, let's take a body. And so it was uh, mm. basically at least that first time all the changelings were essentially Arcadian changelings. Mm. And then after that, they had some time to actually figure out a more permanent solution. And that's when they came up with the changeling way as it is now. So that first one kicked out a mortal soul. But then after that, when they reincarnated, they, mm -hmm. uh, it was more of a, uh, the merging of two, two souls. Take it. Yeah. An interesting thing about when we were looking at like the first edition core book mm -hmm. and then later is, uh, the Arcadian, she worked differently in that, mm -hmm. in that there was no soul thing. They <laughs> literally physically replaced a person and took on looking like them and sent the human back to her. Oh, that's cool. I did, I, back to her it's TV. been so long since I've read the uh, first edition changeling core book. I forgot about that. Yeah. But it's just, and then at some point, the, I, I think by the time we got to the shining host, uh -huh. it's now the model yeah. what you think of, I think <laughs> by now, but that's an interesting, that is interesting. I, I'm going to have to go back and read that because I don't, don't remember that, I, but that's cool. And it actually explains a lot of the way, uh, there was an old card game that was very short-lived that was a tie-in to Changeling the Dreaming called oh, yes. Arcadia the Wild Hunt. And one of the playable uh, character types in it are, are humans that were uh, mortals sent to Arcadia mm -hmm. by Changelings. And that description of them really ties into the way they sort of work in the Arcadia card game. So that's cool. Mm. <laughs> yep. Fluid canon all over the place. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially for something that's been running, going on for so long, has had so many different uh, yeah. different writers and developers and everything over the years. Yeah. And also, especially when it's also supposed to be in a world with some number of other games, uh -huh. the exact number depends on how you count them. Yeah. All with their own line developers and everything. So. Yeah. Contradictions are bound to pop up somewhere. <laughs> There's no way around it. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of contradictions, uh -huh. in the appendix, we get at long last the return of two of the arts from the Shadow Court Yes, with contempt, which I, I tend to think of as an art of contradiction mm -hmm. but, and delusion. Indeed. So I was glad to see these return because they're such fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, nice to have them in C20 rules. <laughs> so There was discussion about including them in the core book, but the ideas at that time, they kind of morphed into what eventually became the seasonal arts in the core book. Mm. But in the intervening years from when uh, C20 was worked on till this one, I don't know. It just seemed like that there was a place for a proper dark arts uh, in Changeling the Dreaming. Yeah. So I wanted to revisit the idea of uh, contempt and delusion and see what, uh, what could be done with them. Um, and still not step on the toes of the of the sea what what ended up becoming the seasonal arts. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. mm. yeah. Again, there's story potentials. You know, thinking about something like the darkest heart cantrip, which can create this whole new background, new identity, mm. and using that on someone without their knowledge <laughs> to create like the perfect sleeper agent. You know, that's a whole trope mm. that you can work into changeling. Absolutely. So. And then the, this, this, the fake identity is completely like it's a real person with their own, uh, right. with their own thoughts and feelings. It's completely separate about, uh, from whoever is actually hiding, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. And so once that, 
person gets dissolved, I can see just some sort of tragic story with that, uh, where somebody, where the, the, the fake identity is this, this wonderful person and then the, uh, the true identity is, is evil and then the, the fake person gets burned away as the, as the true villain reveals themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was about to say something. They were like, nope, you, you can sum that all up. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You don't know, it's great. <laughs> and we end with the Magar. The Magar. I was scared to say the name, but you're you're better at the uh, mm-hmm. pronunciation there. <laughs> oh, I'm just I'm winging it. I mean, <laughs> that's that's how <laughs> I've always pronounced it. So, <laughs> vampire fae. Vampire fae. Or and yeah. not just any vampire fae, but vampire fae who have actually been published in vampire books before Changeling books. Yes. So how was that? How was that navigated? I mean, in terms of contrasting them to, because they're in they're in Dark Ages, mm-hmm. Vampire Twenty, right? Yep. So I don't know about in Vampire Twentieth, the Dark Ages, but I do know in uh, the uh, Talma Talma Ray book. I think it's how you pronounce it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is where the Magar appear as the Magar. Steffi Devan wrote that, and she also wrote this write-up of the Megar. So um, hmm. she is <laughs> very much responsible for the Megar. <laughs> um, but what what I really wanted to to do with the Megar is is I think that they're a wonderful concept, and I love the idea of changelings who are fairies that get embraced by vampires, but but still retain some of their glamour somehow. Uh, the, the embrace doesn't completely strip them of all their glamour. So they still have some of their fairy nature, even though they're vampires. And so the idea here is that the bloodline that shows up in the vampire books is the vampire, ma- the masquerade perspective on these guys. And this kith in this book is the changeling, the dreaming perspective on these guys. They're the same thing. They're just from different points of view. I like it too, because it fills a gap in, I believe, so in the original Autumn People book with the types of Dauntane, there is the one called the Typhoid. And Mm -hmm. one of the key examples they use is changelings that have become ghouls. So Mm -hmm. they have, as this book puts it, they have vampire blood in their veins. Uh So I like the idea of the Magar being a vampire ghoul who, you know, or something so that that sort of connection. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so it does it does kind of fill that crossover niche, which which Changeling and Vampire has always been the two games that never really seem to quite line up. But, <laughs> yeah. Yet there's there's two different bloodlines <laughs> connected to the at least. Actually some more than two really. Uh-huh. But the like the two key ones that really connect to Changeling. <laughs> yeah, but this is like a, a baked in crossover kind of thing. So. Uh-huh. Yeah. Absolutely. There was originally, uh, Steffi wrote a little sidebar uh, to tell the reader where the Magar originally showed up and uh, a little bit for further reading, uh, check out these Mm -hmm. vampire books. But it didn't really fit in the page layout and of all the information there, it was the the least necessary for, it would have been good information to have, but with the the layout and everything, it just didn't fit in. And so it kind of ended up on the cutting room floor, so to speak. But I'd uh, much rather have the dour art of the the Magar example guy here. I think that's very good for mood setting. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
the artist I've worked with her uh, on this one and uh, Kits of Arcadia. Mm. Uh, Elena, I'm going to butcher her last name because I've never heard it pronounced. Uh, Milare, I think is how it's pronounced, but I'm not 100% sure. She does such a great job of just uh, taking taking my descriptions and bringing them to life. And uh, mm. the idea in this one was it's supposed to be a she who has been embraced by a vampire and is now a vampire. Uh, but he he still has some vestiges of his glamour left. And so it, she captured that so perfectly uh, in, in the visuals here yeah. where he's got these these mm-hmm. once fine clothes that are now tattered and threadbare and his uh, sword that used to be this grand she sword is now chipped and broken and uh, and he's just clinging on to what glamour he has he's still got nice shoes though he still has nice shoes yes <laughs> yeah. even a vampire needs nice shoes okay so that brings us yeah bring on the book let's see is there any final thoughts on this book I think of it as essentially like I would use, I am using it like I would use this if there was an official supplement, but (laughs) in my mind. So, because I know Charlie, you've also put out a sort of homebrew fifth edition version of changeling that's been Mm -hmm. circulated around. And I know that I believe the tithes appear in that as well. The tithes do appear in that. Yeah. Something that I've kind of thought about, I mean, in the unlikely event that we ever do get a fifth edition of Changeling in however many years in the future that is, I feel like the tone Who of knows? this, right, in the 2030s, uh-huh. um, but it, the, no- the knocker in me says we need a fourth edition first. But. Well, <laughs> think of, think of fifth edition as a brand, not a, <laughs> not a number. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I cut you off. (laughs) That's fine. But it seems to me that the tone of this book is kind of the direction that 5th edition would go in, where it is winter, and yeah, okay, maybe not everyone, maybe it's not the end of everything like we saw with Time of Judgment, but glamour is incredibly hard to come by, all the enemies are closing in, and it becomes a game much more of survival rather than even inspiration. So it's definitely a, a dark turn, given the direction we've seen the games go, or we've seen Vampire go, at least in the fifth edition, that's something I think is possible if they end up making it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I feel like this supplement does a good job of almost priming for that. So I think that's a a neat aspect. So one of the the nice things about this uh, and the timing of everything is that I created that sort of that fan fifth edition conversion guide before working on this. So I, uh, one of the things that I did on purpose was to sort of have this be kind of a, uh, a book of, uh, or I shouldn't say a book of, but show in this book a little bit about how you can get from the changeling, the dreaming C20 stat- status quo to what was in that take on fifth edition. Mm-hmm. So there's actually one of the prophecies in that in the first chapter there specifically references or is is a specific allusion to what happens in that in the opening fiction of that that conversion guide. Mm-hmm. Nice. And there's a few other things that we well I, I shouldn't say it was in our heads, but it wasn't anything that was directly referenced in the text, like the uh, the darkening being a thing that might happen in the future. So some of that, I think, informed a little bit of the 
of the way dark glamour works. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't supposed to be, by any means. A you know, this is what ends up becoming the darkening in fifth edition, in that fifth edition conversion guide, or by any. But just something that kind of you know, it's it's there as a as something that was in our heads while we were doing it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. So is there is there anything else you've been working on? Sure. Or did you want to say anything first, Puka? Well, that was, I was going to say, what's what would you like to pursue next with your work? So, same question, man. <laughs> well, I have worked on something for Onyx Path that's going to be a lot of fun. The project has been announced, but none of the authors have been announced yet, so I'm not sure if I can say what mm-hmm. it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. NDAs are weird. That narrows it down. Yeah. Excellent. Well, how, about, how about you let us know when you know you can say it, okay. and maybe we'll throw in something into whatever episode <laughs> at that yeah. point. Sounds good. Uh, the other thing that I uh, am so close to releasing, I, I expected it would be released by now, but some uh, uh, interesting things with Harbingers kind of took up some space in my, uh, in my writing time. But I am also working on a Explorer Society release for 7th Sea. Uh, Explorer Society is kind of the seventh C equivalent of, of Storytellers Vault, so it's uh, it's going to be called Glamour's Chosen, hmm. and it, it takes some of the uh, pieces of the first edition Avalon book that didn't make it into second edition seventh C, and brings them over to second edition. Things like the Knights of Elaine, and what might be of interest to Changeling fans, and honestly, the thing that got me into seventh C originally playable she characters <laughs> in 7C. Well, for that and other work, is there anywhere that our listeners might be able to find you online, follow what you're doing, etc.? I am on both Facebook and Twitter. I am Charlie Cantrell on Facebook. I am Puka Knight on Twitter. I lurk on a lot of the forums and discords. <laughs> I'm not as active as I once was, uh, but I, I, I do try to stay informed about what uh, what the various Changeling fan conversations are. And also Radio Free Arcadia has a page on Facebook, and I try to stay updated with, uh, keep that updated with what Radio Free Arcadia is doing. Well, we will include all of those in the show notes when this episode is released. <laughs> So once again, you've been listening to Changeling the Podcast. Uh, you can find our website at changelingthepodcast.com. We also have a page on Facebook that you can follow us. And we have a uh, on Twitter at changelingcast. Did I get it right this time? We did. <laughs> yes. And, as well uh, as Discord. Yeah, Discord, which you can find through our website. It's a lot easier than us trying to read out the link there. And in the show notes, I believe. Um, yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Once again, uh don't let uh, your reality schism. Uh, that would be awful, wouldn't it? That would be terrible. And thank you again, Charlie, for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys for having me.